Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week is nature reporter Heidi Ledford. Hi Heidi. Hello. Now we're going to open this week with some great news for you, which is that you are getting your first COVID jab today. I am very happy for you, he says through gritted teeth as he awaits his own. <laughs> I'll tell you, I think they announced Tuesday that it would be 45 and older. We're now eligible here in, in London. And Wednesday was my birthday and I turned 45. <laughs> Thursday, I got the text from the NHS saying you may now book your appointment. And this afternoon, I'm going to walk five minutes down the road and get my shot. Like, I was just so happy. Who knew turning 45 would be wonderful? <laughs> right? And you're getting the AstraZeneca shot as well. Did you have any reaction to getting this particular shot? So it said in the text message, it said you may now book your AstraZeneca shot. So it told me right away what I'm getting. And I think I paused for about half a second. And then I said, Okie dokie. <laughs> Book me in. <laughs> I was very happy. And that half a second pause, because I have been reporting about this a bit over the past couple of weeks, I guess the half a second pause was for me to think, do we need to know more before I do this? You know, should I wait a week or two just to see? Because the numbers are changing all the time. But I thought, you know, even if the numbers go up a bit, we already know this is, you know, a handful of additional cases in a background of 25 million or whoever have been vaccinated. And this is just such a, no, I'm absolutely going for it. I'm very happy. It's amazing. And I think this is a really interesting backdrop for the conversation we're going to have today, which is about rare blood clots. So this is something that is just continuing to swirl around the news media. People are reading about it all the time, particularly with the AstraZeneca vaccine. But now there's also been new possible cases have been raised related to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So we've talked a lot about the fact that these clots have happened and that it's very hard to attribute them to the vaccine. There's various reasons for that. I'll put a link in the show notes to the episode where we discussed that. But one of the things that we said in that episode that you really need to work out to be able to kind of get a clear understanding of whether or not this is a side effect or just a random occurrence is the biological mechanism for how a vaccine like this could actually lead to a blood clot like this. And that's kind of what you've been looking into over the last week or so. Yeah, I've got to say the disappointing answer to that is that it's a little bit still anybody's guess. Conversation has evolved over the past few weeks. You know, I think initially we talked a lot about just sort of clots in general. And now we're looking at this very 
unusual constellation of symptoms where you've got blood clots. They're showing up in unusual places. So normally you think of blood clots in the limbs and the legs in particular. These are showing up in the brain and in the abdomen. And at the same time you have these blood clots, you also have actually a deficiency in these cellular fragments called platelets that are involved in clotting. So on the one hand, you've got lots of blood clots. On the other hand, you're low in this factor that encourages clotting. So they had observed this particular constellation of symptoms in very few people who've received the AstraZeneca vaccine. That was when it was initially flagged. They've now also got a handful of cases, I think to six in the United States from people who have received the J&J vaccine. Yeah, so this unusual combination of symptoms is something that we've kind of hinted at as well when we've spoken about this before. My understanding is that this isn't completely new. This is an understood combination of symptoms. This syndrome has happened before, but nothing to do with vaccines in the past. That's right. Yeah. So they've seen it before. It's a very rare side effect of being treated with a blood thinner called heparin. They've known about that for decades. There's a mechanism that's been worked out involving heparin that has to do with, you know, a negatively charged heparin interacting with a positively charged protein in the body called platelet factor four. It forms this complex. There's an immune reaction to that. The body develops antibodies against that. Those antibodies then basically muck around with the proper functioning of the platelets and you end up with this syndrome. So that's the sort of idea. But we don't know how is the vaccine serving as heparin kind of in this scenario, right? So there are so many things that you could imagine. You could imagine that um, you know, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the J&J vaccine, they both rely on an adenovirus to shuttle in a bit of coronavirus DNA that is then expressed in cells. Maybe it's the virus. Well, they use two different kinds of adenoviruses, but maybe, you know, it's something to do with that vector. Then again, maybe it's something to do with the intensity or the duration of expression of that particular viral protein. Then again, maybe it has something to do with the dosage that's being used. Then again, maybe it has something to do with some contaminant that comes along through the purification process. It's just, you know, you can imagine all of these scenarios and people really don't have a good handle on it yet. They certainly are looking at it. There are research labs that are jumping on this now. But at the moment, it's really speculation. And I guess there's several ways that you could try to get to the bottom of what's happening here. One of which is to do very sort of mechanistic lab studies looking at the constituents of the vaccine and then maybe look for negatively charged elements there, for example, that might act in the way that heparin is acting. Another thing that you can do is you can look at the epidemiology and try to find places where the people that are being affected by these very, very rare events happen to share something in common, which might give you a clue as to what is happening here. But that second way of doing it, that's also not that simple. People are suggesting maybe it's younger women that are affected more here. But actually, if you look at the stats, that's not as clear cut as it might be. And the EMA has come to that conclusion as well. That's right. I mean, and that was also, it's been difficult because the narrative has kind of evolved over the past few weeks. And it's quite hard to sort of get yourself unstuck from what you heard first. <laughs> you know, so initially what we heard was younger women blood clots. And now what we're hearing is maybe younger women, but we don't know. And a very specific kind of blood clot. The trouble with um, narrowing it down to younger women. Well, that kind of thing does tend to happen more often in women in general. But the problem is that the vaccine hasn't been rolled out equally. This isn't a controlled clinical trial. You know, it's messy real world data. We've had rollout programs that often prioritize healthcare workers. 
healthcare workers are more often women. So what we need are good data in terms of, you know, how many women have gotten the vaccine, how many men have gotten the vaccine. And uh, that data is not always available from every member state of the EU, for example. So they weren't able to draw a conclusion. And even with age, you again run into a problem because you may see it more often among younger people. But if you have an elderly person who shows up with a clot in the brain, you may not investigate that as thoroughly as you would a 32-year-old woman who shows up with a clot in her brain, right? A 32-year-old woman with a clot in her brain is an unusual event. It sort of triggers, you know, extra investigation. And then you may uncover, oh, also her platelets are low. So it's possible that there have been cases among the elderly that we haven't seen because we, you know, didn't associate necessarily, you know, what they were experiencing with a potential adverse event. So as awareness grows, we could sort of hope to get better data, you know, over the coming weeks. But it's hard because decisions have to be made now, right? And they're, they're very important, big decisions. Yeah. And as you mentioned, with messy real world data, that awareness in the population can also potentially cause its own problems as well. If people are hyper aware of the fact that this may be a potential thing, then they may be looking for symptoms and they may be more likely to report that they've had this kind of clot more than they would have done in the past. And again, that skews the way that that data is represented because perhaps this kind of event was happening more regularly, but people weren't looking for it. So they didn't necessarily find it as much. No, that's right. So that's one reason why you may expect the numbers to keep changing for a little while while this knowledge sort of filters out and people start to report potentially more frequently what they've seen. But it does, you know, we are likely to see that being reported more often among people who are vaccinated than among the general public, let's say. So we don't have a good baseline comparison necessarily because we're going to have so many people who are vaccinated on high alert for this, people who haven't been vaccinated, particularly with AstraZeneca or J&J, not as much on alert, maybe less likely to catch it. And so it's going to be hard to figure out, you know, the risk ratios there. And the baseline itself is a tricky thing to narrow down because we do know there's lots of good evidence that shows that COVID itself changes the risk of various blood clots from happening. And we don't have a clear understanding of how and why. And so it may be that the fact there's been this rapid dissemination of COVID throughout the population could also be increasing the background. And so therefore, again, the relative occurrence of events like this could be a bit skewed by that. And we, as of yet, just don't understand how that works. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there there are so many things we don't understand. And so there was, you know, like I said, I had that half second where I paused and thought, wait, should we, should we find out more? But I still feel very comfortable, you know, doing this, given the risks of, of COVID itself. But individuals will make that decision and countries are going to be making that decisions, right? And they, they already are to some extent. We already see more hesitancy to using these vaccines in countries where COVID levels may be low or where other vaccines are available. They're more likely to say, well, you know what, we're not going to deal with this. We don't have to. And then you have other countries where they're very heavily reliant, particularly upon AstraZeneca and J&J. These were two globally very significant vaccines because they are cheaper to make than the mRNA vaccines and they are easier to transport. They don't require the same intensive cold chain. So these two vaccines are really important. So it's important to get this information out. And I think different countries are going to have sort of different risk benefit calculations that they're going to factor in as they as they work through this. And that's something that I think is really key here, this question of risk and trying to actually put the risks that we're talking about into some perspective here, because it is always scary to say, you know, there is a potential, even if it's not been demonstrated clearly yet, very rare risk of this very serious side effect from this vaccine. People think, well, I do have the choice of whether or not I take the vaccine or not, so I should consider that. But in the process of this sort of risk discussion, there have been various other risks um, of other medications that get brought up that people take on a daily basis. 
because one key example of that is the contraceptive pill, which does have risks of blood clots associated with it. So in the early days, when we talked about young women and we talked about blood clots more generally, and there was some speculation, oh, well, maybe this is because they're taking hormonal birth control. And so this already raises your risk of clots. You know, maybe there's something to do with that. Now, since then, we've moved away from the general blood clotting hypothesis. This isn't what you see in response to birth control. We don't know for sure if it's more of a risk among young women as well. Um, so we've sort of moved away from that. But people have told me, you know, that this is a good frame of reference in terms of risk, you know, that women take birth control. Many are encouraged to by their doctors, for that matter, depending on where you live. But it does carry this risk of blood clots. You know, we do sort of accept a certain amount of risk. Every medication has a risk. You have to sort of weigh, I guess, the relative risks and benefits. I mean, so much of this when I think about this, is about balancing the kind of narrative that's going on with what the data is actually showing and trying to get that perspective often. So as you say, every therapeutic or drug or pharmaceutical has some form of risk associated with it. I don't think there's a single one in the world that doesn't have some form of risk associated with it. And the numbers we're looking at here, even if eventually these rare adverse events are attributed to the vaccine directly, they still are such low occurrences at the moment that it does not make this in any way riskier than what you might expect for a pharmaceutical but people are really focused on it. And that changes the way that people think about things. Yeah, you know, I think part of what's feeding into it as well, part of the concern is that there are people who have died from these clotting events, right? And, uh, you know, I think of the six that were reported in the United States, I think all six are in the hospital, and I think at least one fatality. And so I think that's looming very large over this discussion as well, that it's not just stomach bleeding from aspirin, that this is, you know, something that could be very serious. There's some hope that now that there's wider awareness, people will be able to detect it earlier and potentially intervene earlier. And there are guidelines for intervention. You know, there are, are certain drugs that could be used in certain treatments. We don't know yet how well those are going to work because, again, it's such a rare condition. You know, it's not something that we have a lot of data about. So I think to some extent, maybe how that a narrative evolves may in part depend on our ability to treat this condition. I think we had this situation with anaphylaxis, right, in response to some of the mRNA vaccines early on. And there was some concern about that among the public initially. But I haven't heard anything about it recently. I don't know if you have, but it seems like that has died down. But I think part of the reason that has died down is because we were able to reassure you know, well, anaphylaxis, we're going to treat it this way and that way. We're going to monitor you for X a period of time to make sure it doesn't happen. Or we're going to have people on site who are able to treat you and it's going to be fine. And we can't do that yet with this one. So I think that adds to the narrative. So hopefully we can get some clarity in terms of how best to treat and how effective that's going to be. If we can find a way to better target monitoring and interventions, you know, if we know who's more at risk, if we have a way of detecting it earlier, you know, maybe by looking for certain antibodies and so on, um, you know, all of these things I think could help sort of bring down some of the heat in that narrative. And it is worth saying as well that vaccines do tend to have a lower tolerance for risk than other pharmaceuticals, because vaccines are things we give to healthy individuals. So it would be expected that we should be very, very stringent with these. Yes. I mean, I even feel a bit of an emotional, I don't know if you do, like I feel a bit of an emotional difference in doing something that could harm me, as opposed to not doing something and taking the risk of being harmed. You know what I mean? Like there's a sort of an emotional difference there that I have to be aware of and, and step down on. And I had the same thing when my daughter was a baby and she got, you know, one of those suites of, of vaccinations. And for the next day, she was very sluggish. And I sort of went back and took a second look at the material that they give you and, the, you know, the side effects and what all. And I thought, 
well, this doesn't feel good, <laughs> you know? I mean, absolutely, I'm not hesitant at all about vaccines. My kids are fully vaccinated. I will be fully vaccinated. I'm rushing out to get AstraZeneca this afternoon. But instinctively, it didn't feel good, you know? And, and so there is a, you've got to kind of get your rational mind, for me anyway, I've got to get my rational mind to kind of fight with that instinctive idea, you know, well, maybe I could just hide out in my office slash bedroom a few more months and not get COVID. And then, you know, then okay. I don't have to take this risk with the vaccine. But I think... Um, in the end, that's not good for me or society. So, Yeah, indeed. And I think that it is our nature to try to rationalise everything that we see. And it is difficult when there is very, very sparse data or very confusing data on this, but there is a signal that people can see. People try to make associations very quickly. And so, for example, there's been quite a lot of focus on the AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots for quite some time. And then when J&J announced that they have some rare cases associated with it, people immediately go, oh, both viral vector vaccines. Therefore, this is just bolstering that argument. Even within our news team, I remember the first thing was people were like, okay, does, does this mean that it's more likely now that it is definitely a thing? And I'm kind of interested in what your reaction to jumping to that conclusion is, because that's not really how data works. That's true. That's right. It's not really how data works. I think right away, you know, from the moment last week when EMA said, you know, we do think that there is a possible association, and they did also use the word strong association between the vaccine and these rare side effects, right away, the question was, well, what about J&J? You know, is it a class effect? Is it because of the adenovirus? Because we don't seem to be seeing it with the mRNA vaccines. And I just started to feel devastated for J&J. You know, I mean, they put a pause on distribution in many countries. And I was talking to someone in South Africa yesterday, and she said, you know, we have barely gotten vaccination underway. We are terrified that there may be a third surge on its way of COVID. The mortality rate here is over 3% from COVID. And now they're telling us that they're not going to give us this vaccine because six out of seven million people or what have you have come down with this very rare clotting disorder. And it's just not computing. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of perception of relative risk is really a core part of this discussion. But none of that is to say that just because the risk is low, we should ignore this or dismiss this. Of course, it's still really vital to investigate these things. And that investigation is part of what can give people confidence to take the vaccine in the first place. You know, the fact that we know that people will investigate this, that's why you're going out to have a vaccine today. Yeah, that's right. And it is a serious potential side effect. And it's something that needs to be looked at. And it's remarkable that we've been able to pick it up so quickly, given how rare it is and how unusual these particular symptoms are. It takes some digging, you know, to put this together. And they did that incredibly quickly. And that they were transparent about it immediately, you know, is also something that I think could give one faith in the system and, and how it's working and the safety reporting and so on. But I am aware that negative information tends to be sticky and uh, it'll be hard to shed that, I think. And there's almost like a tension, I think, between this need to be very transparent and to act quickly and proactively, but also a need to sort of not put people off of the vaccine unnecessarily or every time we find, you know, a potential association with this or that, you know, it's very difficult. It's a tightrope, right, that these these regulators and these public health officials are walking right now. This is something that we're going to have to talk about again. I'm sure I doubt this is going away. There are more vaccines still to be rolled out. They will all be monitored. It's a long road ahead of us to try to vaccinate the world. So I'm sure we'll be back to talk about this again. But for now, thank you so much for joining me and enjoy your jab this afternoon. Strange I have never say. looked forward to a shot so much in my life. Part of me keeps thinking, oh, it's going to hurt though, isn't it? But fine. <laughs> 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.